destiny has brought me this lamb chop. My name is Matthew Kroll. And you think you're so great because you've got boats. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Napoleon. Napoleon. But Shahir, we are not going to discuss um, the much maligned Frenchman alone. Uh, I it, it just so happens that I work for a company... <laughs> <laughs> that does, uh, dare I say, some of the best damn historical content on the internet, and uh, this man is the one of the largest reasons for that fact. So, Topan Fam, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce someone who I've worked with closely for the last five-ish years, head writer of our Extra History series YouTube channel, uh, author also of many a novel such as The Infinite and the Divine, Assassinorium Kingmaker, I believe I pronounced that right, and The Fall of Cadia, those are all Warhammer Universe uh, novels, and just one of the best dang people I've ever had the privilege of knowing and working with, who which also just so happens to have the most badass name on the planet. Please, everyone, <laughs> say hello to Mr. Robert Rath. Hey, how are you guys doing? Hi, buddy. It, it is a fantastic name, Rob. You really got to rock that one. Thank you. I, I am frequently asked if it's like a pen name or a pseudonym. And I was like, <laughs> no, it's actually, it's, it's a name that sounds amazing, but actually it it's like Gaelic for like an old Iron Age fort that is just yeah. a, a wall. Like it's a, it's a, literally just like a wall so it's like robert the guy no not that guy the guy who lives by the wall is you know how <laughs> is the origin of that <laughs> but in, in in the marvel origins it would be the person who ra- who who wreaks vengeance upon you right yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Some way, some way. <laughs> i did i did know uh, a guy in sixth grade who had uh wrath w-r-a-t-h and uh yeah Ooh. i was i was intimidated like you know yeah <laughs> That one more letter. Actually, so gentlemen, I have to say something right up top. Okay. This is a bit of a, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the nice way of saying mind fuck is for me because you are both in different parts of my lives, my work husbands. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and to have you both here, it feels like I'm on the same, I'm on a date. Right. And I, I'm it's that thing where like I'm at one table yeah. and I'm talking to Shahir and I'm like, oh, shit, Rob's over there. Hold on. Uh, I'm going to the restroom and I have to run over and talk to Rob. So this is just it's a lovely it's a lovely uh, the co- thing that we've rigged up here. But I just have to say how awesome and weird and cool this is uh, in well, this particular moment. Uh, we have switched from monogamy to polyamory, I guess, is what, is what has happened here. <laughs> were there and, others uh, when you were in Egypt, Matt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keeping it on topic. I like it. Well, I'm excited as well because I have to be very upfront and honest with you. While there are many topics of history which I feel like I have, uh, I feel qualified to talk about. This is one where I admittedly know very little about Napoleon's uh, or the Napoleonic period. In fact, the most I know about Napoleon was there was a gag in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie (laughs) where they were playing Trivial, Trivial Pursuit. And I think Raphael asked the question... What Russian novel set in the Napoleonic Wars uh, has more than 5,000 characters? And um, Donatello immediately says, uh, War and Peace. And that's the only reference to the Napoleonic Wars that I know anything about. Okay. Uh, uh, but I did actually try, I, I, oddly, I did pick up a book this afternoon and was like, maybe I could just read something in, uh, it, it, you know, uh, in the few short hours I have. And I found a book called A Napoleon, A Very Short Introduction, which I think is a play <laughs> on the uh, <laughs> on wow. the height as well. Wow. Uh, so I'm excited to have someone who, 
undoubtedly, given that you guys have done a series on Napoleon's time in Egypt, has more of a grasp on Napoleon. I can maybe fill in some of the Ridley Scott of this all of this whole conversation, though I'm sure you have opinions about that. But I'm 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 excited to hear Rob, you in particular, talk about the fascination with Napoleon, because this is a topic that is quite alien to me, uh, coming from my part of the world, and and just literally not a topic we studied in high school history at all. Yeah, I mean, same with me because um, I'm from Hawaii, so I'm I'm also like Asia Pacific, uh, and yeah. you know we didn't do a lot on uh, European <laughs> European political yeah. figures. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know I. I I, I can't claim to be a specialist in Napoleon specifically. Uh, I did a lot of work in uh, 18th century Britain, and mm-hmm. I have read uh, a lot kind of for pleasure about the Napoleonic era. Uh, the Richard Sharp uh, series mm-hmm. of books were a, a big entry point for me into, into 18th century history. I still love those. Um, and uh, of course, we did our Napoleon in Egypt series. Uh, he's, he's a really fascinating figure. And I I feel like if, for whatever reason, uh, you're listening and you watched our Napoleon in Egypt series, it might give a little bit of a distorted sense of my opinion on Napoleon. Napoleon has <laughs> come up twice in our show, once yep, in the yep. Egyptian campaign and once in reimposing slavery in Haiti. It just yeah. happens that we've covered like two of his ugliest episodes. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> he's a he's like a monumental figure, you know, that the whole uh, he did so many things. He was so transformative. Um, there's such a range of opinions about him that, yeah. you know, he himself is almost his own field of study. So, you know, weirdly. It's one of those things where you know if you if you know some about something, you the more you're going to admit that you don't know. Um, right. I, you know, I almost feel unqualified to talk about Napoleon because you know it's a very specific like thing. Um, <laughs> you know, Ridley Scott. We'll get we'll get to it, but like has been <laughs> has been hit a lot by historians on the uh, on the the historical aspects of this movie, which I think is both fair and unfair in in, in certain ways. However, I, uh, I think no matter what he did with this movie, someone would have been mad about it because Napoleon oh, yeah. is one of those figures that there's such a range of opinions on. And there are people who really uh, see him as a, 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 a force for good in uh, protecting the revolution. And there are people who see him as a tyrant dictator um, and they both kind of can make convincing arguments for that. He's a complicated figure who does a lot of things. And, you know, he was always going to leave something out that that rubbed someone the wrong way or include something that they're like, well, why'd you put this in and not that? Uh, Napoleon's right. kind of a minefield, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and one that is like the uh, a minefield that is also the rarity, I think, in history that even if you don't know much about Napoleon, Napoleon is still a household name. Like you, you either know Napoleon as a Napoleon complex, like a short, angry person or like the things that are sort of like equated to the name of Napoleon. You at least know he's a French dude who was someone in charge in France and people said he was short. Like it it feels like that's information that's across the globe. Yeah. Um, And and even then you're like, well, really, how French is he? You know, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. Particularly in this film. 
Well, 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 before we dive in straight up to Napoleon, Rob, I want to talk to you a little bit because you and I talk about history quite a bit, but we do not get to talk about movies all that much. I mean, maybe like a, a fifth of our Wednesday meetings might be talking about a film we've seen and we've liked. But like, I guess my first question would be like, in general, what type of films have you always gravitated towards or are you feeling sort of now? Right now, just listeners, just so you know, Rob is in Hong Kong. So that's why there might be a, a very, very slight delay in our audio. We are doing this globally right now. Um, Shahir and I are a block away from each other. Rob is across a very large body of water. Um, so, so, but yeah, like either what's, what's, what have you been watching over there or what did you grow up with? Just sort of like, what, what's your, what's your vibe, man? Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 like many people of my generation was kind of like a media latchkey kid. Uh, where mm -hmm. it was like, you know, here's a two liter of Dr. Pepper and uh, <laughs> a Subway sandwich and the Indiana Jones trilogy. And uh, I'll yeah. see you at four o'clock, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, so, you know, I, I really grew up with Spielberg and uh, Disney animation and uh, a lot of Hong Kong action movies. Those are mm -hmm. very popular uh, growing up in Hawaii. There's a large Asian population. Mm -hmm. So like Kung Fu films and and Japanese films and, and uh, animation really made a big impact there early. Uh, so I grew up with a lot of, uh, a lot of Jackie Chan and uh, that type of thing. Um, I have always loved big action epics. Uh, I tend to like stuff that has, has very uh, intimate drama and good dialogue as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I started writing as a playwright, so I, I really admire things that that ha have uh, excellent characterization and writing. Um, I like historical movies a lot, um, you know, mm. pr perhaps predictably. Um, yeah. As someone who went on to study and write about history, I really love them. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, I'm sure we're going to make some comparisons to various other historical films to Napoleon, but, you know, uh, I also love um, mysteries. Uh, Mm. Uh, mystery movies. I do a little bit of horror, but it's mostly like haunted house horror. I tend to like ghosts, but go a little too heavy on the gore in the horror aspect. And I'm, it's, yeah. it's not so much. I like the well, atmosphere. But, yeah, we were uh, talking earlier when we were planning this. Uh, you were excited that we did house a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh, my God, someone else. Knows. OK, cool. Yay. <laughs> Yeah, I, in the uh, history circles. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's that's a good that's a good kind of entry into. Um, and then when I was was in college, I was doing a lot of Asian film, and then uh, <clears throat> I moved to Austin, and I was for large parts of that living across from an Alamo draft house. Uh, oh, where, the dream. Yeah, yeah. My my vacation every year was going to Fantastic Fest in South by Southwest to to do the nice. film film stuff there, midnight movies, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, when I moved to Hong Kong, strangely, a lot of that movie stuff sort of narrowed down uh, mm -hmm. because the, the film markets out here are different. And um, I, you know, strangely, I saw probably more Asian film in Austin than I do living in Hong Kong, mm. um, partially right. because, you know, when something would come to Austin, you're like, oh, this is going to be good. Whereas, you yeah. know, you just go to a random film here and you walk out and you're like, that wasn't, that wasn't very... It's funny. I, I used to teach um, Korean cinema, for example, and we were always taught, um, we always discussed the fact that in Korea and in Hong Kong uh, and mainland China as well, 
the movies that we get excited about aren't usually the biggest hits there. Television tends to be the mainstay. Mm-hmm. So while I was, you know, you're coming from Hong Kong, so excited about Wong Kar Wai growing up and, you know, devoured everything that he was making. Um, it was only later that I realized, like, you know, most um, Hong Kong, you know, citizens don't really care for his work that much or no. you know, he's not a, he's not as popular a figure as television star or television film. Um, television is in those countries um and i think that's a really important thing because as you say the the best or the most interesting uh, interesting films are the ones that get exported out um and so television tends to be the thing that's most important there i was just while you were talking i was really curious though um as a as someone who's very fascinated with history was there any film that kind of made you go they got this right um you know, I, this is sort of a little bit of a hobby horse of mine, which is that mm. I don't think I don't think necessarily the purpose of a film is to like display a period with per- perfect accuracy because it's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's impossible yeah. due to cinematic conceits. It's impossible due to um, budgetary limitations. Which, you know, I, I saw a lot of people saying like, "Oh, Napoleon's a two hundred million dollar movie." Like, two hundred million dollars disappears really quickly when you're making a movie like this. Um, when you're blowing up the pyramids, right? Or <laughs> you know, or uh, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> um, but you know, I I I read somewhere that Ridley Scott like shot this movie in 66 days, which is unbelievable. Like, yeah. um, and and that's a way of keeping costs down. And you know, you you make you make sacrifices even when you have a ton of money. But um, you know, for example, uh, I. What I think of as a really good historical movie is something that conveys a major theme of the period or of a person's life well to the audience. And like, I don't really care if some train engine that they're getting on is 20 years too late. Like, and to me, it's a little bit like if you're going to a play and someone is you know, making a motion like they're riding a horse and someone like stands up and is like, there's no horse there. He's just pretending to gallop around the stage. It's like, yeah, we know, dude. Yeah. It's it's a representation of something. And uh, I, so I, for example, I really love, probably my favorite historical film is uh, L.A. Confidential. Of course. Because nice. yeah. it, not, not a, not based on a true story, right? Uh, based on a James Elroy novel. Right. It's the. It's not technically based on a true story, but many of the elements that are in it actually happen. Like Bloody Christmas was a real event where they're there. It was the murder in the cafe, right? The uh, yeah, the yeah, the yeah. night owl uh, night killings, owl, yeah. and then uh, Bloody Christmas, which is this incident at the beginning where they they end up um, they end up beating these these Mexican American guys that have been taken into custody uh, yeah. because you know during arrest they they hit a cop and then there's this story that spirals out of control about how badly this guy was injured. Um, and you know, that was, that was a real scandal in the LAPD. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we'll again, get, get into this later, but, you know, I really believe that if you ask any historian about like a movie that is, is like 20 years ago or a book that was written 20 years ago, what they're going to say is this book about Queen Elizabeth is actually about something that was going on at that time. Right. I don't mm-hmm. know why we don't do that when a movie is released. <laughs> right. There has to be yeah. like some distance before we start saying that. 
but yeah. it's so obvious. And you know, th the fact that people will use history when they're really talking about some contemporary issue is just taken as 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 obvious on its face. But then, for whatever reason, when a movie when a movie is new, we don't think about that. Um, but you know, LA Confidential, you know, it's about the Rodney King, you know, incident, yeah. the Rodney King riots, and the the tendency of the LAPD to protect itself and protect its own power. Um, so I love that movie, and I also love, by the way, that it's a it's a movie about the 1950s that doesn't do the hit list. It doesn't like do yeah. poodle skirts, um, yeah. atomic bomb, red scare, like none of that is in it. But it's very clearly the 1950s. Um, yeah. So I, I love that about it. Um, you know, Saving Private Ryan is fantastic, even though again, like you go, you can go into many mistakes that they made. But, yeah. you know, it felt very authentic. And the point of a movie is for it to feel very authentic when you are in the theater and watching it. You know, it's a representation of reality. It's not reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's also, you know, like, I really love The Lion in Winter, <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, A Man for All Seasons. You know, yeah. that's, that's the kind of thing that it doesn't take a lot of special effects necessarily to make a historical movie. Um, yeah. It just depends on what you focus on. Okay, well, that's, that, I think that's going to play in an interesting way because uh, as you as you kind of uh, hinted at earlier, uh, Ridley Scott has been, uh, uh, I guess, on the defensive when it comes to Napoleon in terms of the historical accuracy, to which his response has been, get a life. Uh, and I'm very curious <laughs> uh, what we think about that comment here. Um, let's back up and talk just very briefly about Ridley Scott. We've done... Uh, a couple of Ridley Scott films on here. We did Last Duel. We did Alien Covenant. Did we do Prometheus? I don't think we did Prometheus. We did not do, do Prometheus. Prometheus. And if I'm wrong, email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com and tell me which of the 450-something episodes I missed. Yeah. And and uh, Ridley, you know, Scott, uh, Sir Ridley Scott, by the way, is 86 years old and he has been nothing if not prolific. He and Martin Scorsese seem to be in a tit for tat in terms of who can have the greatest <laughs> output towards the uh, later generation later years of their life and he has been you know we had two films in one year last year with uh house of gucci uh the last duel and then now napoleon all three by the way uh films set in europe in italy france twice uh featuring american actors um speaking in british and american accents and and whatever jared leto <laughs> was doing in house of gucci um but but uh you know, I, I think if you go back to our Alien Covenant episode where we discuss his filmography in a little bit more detail, I think I just wanted to sort of uh, reiterate my point there, which is that there is no denying the output of the man and no denying the highs of his work. You know, films like Alien, Blade Runner, um, Thelma and Louise. I think The Martian is a masterpiece. Um, you know, there's no denying the the highs of his work are incredible. I think I just want to say, for me personally, I think there's been more misses than highs, uh, and I'm never, I'm, I'm never quite that excited to see a Ridley Scott movie. And I personally, uh, be, you know, he, if you go and listen to his, any of his interviews, uh, and again, you know, saying this with a point of view of like, who the fuck am I? Uh, but there is a cantankerous old man quality to uh, the way he gives interviews now, which is, which I kind of love. Um, but at the same time, there was a comment that was made, 
when he was making Exodus of Gods and Kings, uh, which of course is a biblical tale, uh, but you know, set in Egypt with air a, quotes, yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot of white men in it, and and his uh, he was asked about that, and and he made some sort of quote saying. Something along the lines of, uh, you know, when you're mounting a movie of this size and this scale with this budget, uh, I can't have a lead called Muhammad so and so and such and such. And um, the the issue that I took with that quote is not that I don't disagree with what Ridley Scott is saying or don't understand the point of view that he has as a person who makes movies on the scale that he makes. I think the issue that I had, or the thing that I think about a lot, is that. For him, the fact that he was making a film in Egypt and casting um, uh, Joel Edgerton as uh, <laughs> as an Egyptian wasn't a cause for pause or concern, right? Uh, and I think that 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 would be my point about that. And and I <laughs> just jumping very early into Napoleon, we've discussed this ad nauseum on on this on this podcast. I am always on the back foot when we start in France with a title card that says France 1785, and the first words you hear are, hello, governor, welcome to France. (laughs) And I'm always just a little bit, I'm always just going to be a little bit like, uh-huh. Why? Okay. Yeah. Why? That's how the French spoke. <laughs> hello, uh, governor. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, I want to say hello real quick before we dive in. I know we're doing a lot of preambles. We do have one email. Oh, yes. Sorry. Uh, so let's say hello to that. Get that through and then we'll dive into Napoleon. All right. Well, Kellen Redison, uh, thank you for, again for writing us. Kellen, I uh, hope you're enjoying the lovely fall, late fall weather. Note sarcasm. Still working my way through the back catalog. I recently listened to your episode on Spike Lee's joint Crooklyn, episode 100. 23 October 1st 2017 Kellen love the um, love the actual detail you put into it here Uh, and you two and you two semi answered a question I've been meaning to ask for quite a while now what are the best New York City movies at the time you were a little hesitant to answer because you hadn't really lived in New York City long enough to be real New Yorkers for your opinions to matter well six years later do you guys feel like real New Yorkers now? And hopefully you've seen enough New York movies since 2017 with new releases of old films or watch for the first time that you could share either what you think is the most optimistic, idealistic version of New York City in a movie or what is the most honest, realistic depiction of the city in a movie or both. Thanks as always. Wow. Um, this is, I, I love this question. There is more to this email. And by the way, there were more emails that we got uh, this week. Uh, we are just for the sake of brevity, just going to read this one question here. But I thought also a good icebreaker between us. Um, Matt and Rob, did you guys have any thoughts about your favorite New York City mov- movies or moments or representations of the city? Uh I'll just go real quick. Weirdly, this is so we we were talking a little bit before the show, and uh, I think the most ideological version of New York is from Spider-Man one or two, the Raimi films. We were mentioning that before because it's the yeah, it's like you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And it's like, (laughs) okay, fighting the Green Goblin on the Brooklyn Bridge or the Washington Bridge. Um, And uh, or there's the train scene issue here. You brought up in our conversation before. He's just a kid. And then they like don't like say who he is like that would just be insane. The one that I never thought I would be like, that is what New York feels like. And I'm even going to go as far as saying New York City and upstate New York is a film that we've already brought up on this goddamn podcast already. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first live action movie, feels like New York. And then when they go upstate, (laughs) it feels like upstate. And like, I cannot believe watching it now how 
even though that's New York in the late 80s, early 90s, um, it, like the vibe is just there. April O'Neil's uh, loft apartment in that in that movie is something to behold. It is like yeah. it's as huge. It, it would be revered now because it's so big, but it's also so shitty. Um, oh, it's, it's super shitty. Yeah. It's it's the size of the friend's apartment yeah. just for her and like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's mine. Rob, do you have anything real quick? Like, uh, do you have any ideas about New York film? Yeah. Um, you know, it it has to be Ghostbusters. One and one and two. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. I don't say that because my kids got obsessed with the theme song at Halloween. And yeah. now <laughs> that is the only thing I listen to in the car while I'm driving them around Hong Kong is just Ghostbusters <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, occasionally interspersed with a My Little Pony song called Time to Be Awesome. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know, when I was a kid, that was, again, I'm living out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, like that was New York to me. And I, I went to New York for the first time when I was five, mm -hmm. I think, which was, you know, late 1980s. And, uh, you know, we're driving through the, the city around Central Park we're in a, in, I think we were in a taxi. And all of a sudden I started yanking on my mom and like shaking yeah. her practically and going, mom, 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 that's Dana Barrett's apartment. That's Dana Barrett's apartment. Because they, <laughs> you know, they shot this one building on, I think yeah. it's Central Park West. And yeah, it was so recognizable. <laughs> yeah. It was so recognizable yeah. to me in the skyline that I, I knew what it was as, you know, at five <laughs> years old. That was also the time we got a SWAT team called on us. Maybe it was 1990 or 91, what? now that I think about it, because um, I was taken to FAO Schwartz and I could get one toy and I got the uh, slime proton pack from okay. Ghostbusters 2. And I insisted on taking it with us in our carry-on luggage. And you know what really looks like a bomb when it goes through yeah. an old airport scanner? <laughs> <laughs> like, those, those two big canisters. <laughs> like, <laughs> so we had like Egon the bomb would squad. Be proud. <laughs> we had like the bomb squad called out on us. I think at like Guardia. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. All right. All right. So the Ghostbusters films, that makes yeah. total sense. Well, I, uh, I'll, I'll jump in with just the fact yeah. that, again, I, I still feel, you know, just because I'm a, a, a transplant to America in general, as well as a transplant to New York, um, I think the thing that I think is most interesting about New York is that there, you know, like I think Margin Call is equally a New York movie as much as Black Swan is a New York movie, as much as Taxi Driver is a New York mm. movie, because New York is so wide and fascinating and and you know if you you know um the safety brothers good times if you go into the outer boroughs kind of that's a very unique film for that there are other film uncut gems um just sort of piggybacking off what rob was talking about in terms of the swat team coming out i think <laughs> as you said that uh i thought a lot about uh the journey that tom hanks takes in penny marshall's big from jersey into the city like and and he basically does a traverse of like the entire New York City experience in, in in just a few weeks, which is that he's in this shitty little apartment um, hotel for men, I think, at one stage, you know, terrified of gunshots. He goes through, I believe he goes through uh, New York uh, Port Authority bus terminal and then ends up living in like a beautiful Upper East Side or Upper West Side apartment, which no kid his age could ever afford working for a toy company whatsoever. But I think that's you know like I, I'll I'll point to Big as an interesting one, uh, just because it sort of 
traverses the different possibilities of what New York City can be. And everyone has a complete different experience of what New York City can be. For us, yeah. Matt, because we live in Queens. Um, oh, by the way, actually, this is a complete side note on this. Um, I was rewatching The Exorcist um, not so long ago. And there's a sequence, in, even though The Exorcist is set in Washington, D.C., there's a sequence where... Uh, the priest comes home to his house and he, you know, takes off his jacket and there's a radio commercial playing in the background and it's playing very lightly. It's not meant to be the focus, but I, my, my spidey sense started tingling and I, and I, I recorded it. I put it into some AI tools and enhanced it. I split it out and it was a Greek commercial for the Astoria World Manor. No! And it is a 1 minute 30, I think that was the duration of it, full commercial for the Astoria World Manor in 1976. Wow. And it's in Greek. I dropped it into the Astoria Facebook group and was like, could somebody translate this for me? And they translated it. And it is this full thing about how great the Astoria World Manor is. So uh, that, that was just this amazing Do you still moment. have the file? Uh, what's that? Do you still have the file? I still have the file. I posted it up. We should play it at the very end of this I'll, episode. I will send you the file. You can, <laughs> After the music it. plays. It's in Greek. Gonna, I got it. I don't it's care. in Greek. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> yeah. We're doing that. <laughs> so, sorry. Sidetrack to the sidetrack to the sidetrack to the sidetrack. Let's shift sales back. So, before we shift. Okay, okay. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I would like to say Big also has the FAO Schwartz sequence. Yeah, the yes. FAO Schwartz. That's Speaking my thought. FAO of it Schwartz, as well. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, that FAO Schwartz has shut down. Um, yeah. But uh, when I moved to New York, the first thing I did was go to FAO Schwartz and try to play chopsticks on the piano, only to realize every other schmuck from out of town was doing yes. the same thing and was like lined up to do that. And everyone was like, really? Original. Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I that, can imagine was... the FAO Schwartz. The F.A. Schwartz people being like, it's been 20 years of this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that was the other thing we, you know, when, when, when that on that trip to F.A. Schwartz, it was also yeah. like the celebrity thing of like, here's the piano. Because they still had, yeah, well, they still had the piano yeah. as of a couple yeah. of years ago, I guess. Yeah, wow. it, it has. The, the store has shut down, right? I believe yeah. that one did. Yeah, but yeah, they yeah. might have moved the piano somewhere. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway. Shifting sales. Shifting sales. I'm going to read us just so we're all clear. What the Internet Movie Database says Napoleon is about. An epic that details the checkered rise and fall of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his wife, Josephine. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I got to be honest with you guys. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. Sheer, can you please be honest with us? I'm going to be 100% honest with you. This is a really vulnerable moment for me. Okay. Because it is an expression of my age and my ineptitude, uh, which is that I went to see this at 1030 at night uh, in our, at our local movie theater. Um, and it had been a very long day. It's been a very busy last couple of weeks. I have been working nonstop, moving around. Uh and, and if this in any way, dear listener, uh, sullies your opinion of anything I have to say from this point or any of the other 450 odd episodes we've ever done, I don't disagree with you. 
but I did fall asleep at the end of this movie. Ah! <laughs> and, no! and, and so, well, that, that is the actually how I the pick- movie ends: is Napoleon falls <laughs> yeah. asleep. So, like, I literally, I was in the movie theater, and and I was like, I'm, I was like, I could feel myself going, and I was like holding on for dear life, going, no, I've got to talk about this movie. And then the, and then I, my, I, I, I closed my eyes for what I felt was like a second, and opened them to see the final end credits rolling, and I was like, oh god damn it. Um, do you remember what do you remember last? I I I remember the approach to Waterloo, and okay. and and so so I, I you know look eighty sure. percent of it there, Listen, and, I, and, got- and it's the reason I picked up the book. Uh, I, I I I remember the approach to Waterloo. I remember a conversation. Now this I don't know if I hallucinated this or not because this was in that sort of fugue state where I was kind of going <laughs> in and out. But there was a conversation with two young girls towards the yes. end of the movie. Yeah. Okay, that did happen, right? Yeah. I was yeah. like, did that happen? Did I imagine that? And that was the last thing I remember. And then, um, and this then is I woke. Amazing. Because <laughs> what you were describing is literally how the movie ends: is that he has this okay. conversation with the girls, yeah. and then it kind of pans back, and it's him from behind, and he just keels over. Oh, like okay. he's talking See, to the girls, and then he like closes his eyes and keels over and dies. Yeah, like, it's, like it's, I did during the movie. Yeah, exactly. So I you, was basically you, just mirroring his performance. You, in that you moment. Yeah, he was mirroring this. you. This was yeah. an experience for you, not a film. Wow. <laughs> did you go see it in 4DX or whatever? That was your. That was. I, how I you saw did it. it in 4D snooze. They drug you. <laughs> um, Okay, good to know, Shahir. Thank you for being honest with the class. <laughs> Email I, us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com if you would like to chastise <laughs> Shahir for, 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 I don't know. I will take all of your, uh, uh, take all of my uh, punishments. I don't know what that is, but continue. <laughs> I, I, I also have a confession to make. Okay. Um, oh, man. Which is, you didn't see uh, the movie at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I had the opposite experience in that I, uh, my kids kind of had a, were very clingy and wouldn't, weren't letting me leave. I was trying to go to a seven o'clock show, so I wasn't getting out in the middle of the night. And I drove to a, a theater I'm familiar with, but I haven't driven to a bunch of times. And I nearly got in a car accident on my way oh, there. No. Like I, I was, you know, looking, I was following the directions of my phone and it told me to turn, and I turned down like a lane that's that was a trolley lane. Oh no! Like tra- <laughs> and thankfully, it was later 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 at night, and there were no trolleys running at that at that specific moment. But I, <laughs> I flipped out and had to like pull over and like calm down. And as a result, I missed like the first scene of the movie, <laughs> <laughs> wow. which, which okay. I have since watched. But like. Okay. Uh, but I was going to say, am I the only person? Yeah, you're the only person, Matt. But but having well, said that, I was incredibly alert for the rest of the film. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I was well, in a guys, hardcore I, fight or flight. <laughs> I have a, a confession to make. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, Jamie and I had a very nice dinner, and then we watched the entire movie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> with no with no hiccups. We were there early enough to see movie. Uh, movie, whatever Maria Menounos' thing is called uh, at the AMC theaters, I clapped at Nicole Kidman and then it was just off to the races with a much too old Napoleon Bonaparte um, for most of this movie. I, um, I missed the early scene where uh, a woman is in labor and then uh, the, the, the doctor holds up a slick Joaquin Phoenix with his eyes screwed shut and his arms <laughs> folded and moving slightly. 
And uh, missed, and, they, and they say, just, Madam, this is your son, Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> you just go watch Bo is Afraid and you'll basically get that experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't even mean that as a joke. Bo no, is Afraid, one of my favorite experience. movies yeah. this year. Yeah. So, Matt, I think uh, Rob and I uh, can rightly take second place on this conversation. Can you tell us what your thoughts were on Napoleon? I don't know. This is the weirdest <laughs> thing okay. because... I did see the whole movie yeah. and in one sitting and I was never every, every opinion I have contradicts itself. I was never bored, but it was too fucking long. I, I, I enjoyed the performances, but the scenes were set up in such a way where anytime I started caring about something, it moved to something else. I liked looking at the historical moments and trying to juxtapose any emotional resonance with either their relationship or anything else. But it just kind of fell flat to me on on anything other than a window into a moment, into an interpretation of a moment in time. And I, as a whole, especially coming off of the last Ridley Scott film that I saw, The Last Duel, which... I, I don't know if you remember this year, but I had like uh, basically for the first two thirds of that movie, I was like, fuck this movie. And then the last third is so smart where I was like, oh, that's what they were. Oh, shit. And then I, it, I really like had it recontextualize it. So like, I don't know if I was waiting for that moment in this thing to like have it turn around for me, but it just kept feeling like the same and I don't want to say montage because it wasn't a montage, even though the trailer, I know you don't watch them here, was a what a montage of battles to war pigs by Black Sabbath. And I was like, OK, um, it was a good trailer. Uh, so so overall, this did not land with me, despite having multiple elements that I enjoyed performances that I thought were effective. But there was something structurally or, or or even deeper in the the overarching narrative that I couldn't just place. Like, I don't know, other than showing us glimpses into a depiction of Napoleon, I don't know what the fuck this movie is saying. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, it's just, it feels very odd. And I, I'm, I'm, Rob, I'm very curious what your thoughts are of the effectiveness of Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Um. Uh- it is. It's a. It's a really weird movie to wrestle with. Um, I, I, I. Let me just start with something really small that I loved, and this is just like a thing with me. Just it. It. it parts of this movie hit on something that I absolutely love when people do, which is making really Titanic historical characters look like the weirdos that they are (laughs) because you know these sort of like great figures are often just very strange or have weird little things and you know the perfect way to explore that is a marriage because if you are in a marriage you're going to see someone at their most weird um Mm -hmm. and there's the thing where he comes in and he starts acting i think this confused a lot of people but to me it was very clear yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's yeah. he's acting like a, a stallion in heat. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. like pawing the floor with his hoof and like kind yeah. of doing the, the the that horse lips thing, you know. And it's clearly the, some weird thing that he does and some like joke between them. And you know, she has the very realistic reaction of like, "No, I just set my hair." And um, 
something that there are often little things like that. And why I think that's so great, great in observation is not even necessarily that like, this is what Napoleon was like. It's in that people then had a much closer relationship to animals and mm. would kind of, this would be understood as like, this is a horse that wants sex, you know, like, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, that was how a lot of people encountered sex for the first time was seeing animals do it. And uh, it's just such a fun and interesting inclusion. And it's so weird. <laughs> like, and, and there were things like that that I loved. And that may be just be a very specific me thing because it just gets across no, I, something I, without spelling I, it out that makes yeah. it that's really interesting and really interestingly observed thing. But <laughs> it, it doesn't necessarily come together as a whole. And I really feel like, and I'm very interested to see the four hour version on Apple Apple Plus. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I really feel like this movie, and I, I'm about to do something that I absolutely hate when people do. So I apologize, <laughs> which is to start talking about the movie that I wanted to see versus the movie that exists and trying to. Oh, redo don't worry. Shahir does that. Shahir does that all the, all the time. time. This, yeah. this, it's, it's like a it's like a pet peeve of mine, but <laughs> particularly when people are doing it about my 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 episodes your or books my books or your episodes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I I feel like this might have worked better were it called Napoleon and Josephine. Yes, and it was hundred percent specifically That's my, my about their relationship. Yep. Yeah, and it, we had more Josephine because I actually yeah. think one of the problems is that there's not enough Josephine in it, and not enough about her story or focusing on her side of this relationship. Um, because the parts that I enjoyed the most were, were the two of them being weird together and just Same, their yeah. their kind of unusual, kind of toxic relationship. Um, which I feel like could have been developed better. I think that the, the, you know, it's Ridley Scott and I'm sure he felt like he needed to put lots of battles in it. Um, but I, I really feel like to the extent that we saw battles, it should have been reflecting how his relationship with her is impacting those and how this kind of military lifestyle where he's always away is impacting them. And there was some of that, but I, I just, wish there would have been more of it. And it felt like yeah. there were two movies that had been uh, sewn together in a way that they're sharing organs and is not going to work. Like there wasn't there wasn't a lot of yes ending for the reasons why the battles or things were happening. There was just a lot of and then. Yeah. Like and then uh, she cheated on him and then he came back and then like it, like and it's just like th there was. I would have loved some more connective tissue in that regard as well. So, yeah. And and yeah. I think, and again, like I'm frequently kind of relatively forgiving of historical errors for the reasons of film. And there are two big ones that I, I am not so forgiving of with this because I think it changes how people understand the history. One of them being the idea that he comes back from Egypt because Josephine is cheating, which is just patently false. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, nothing about how just the, yeah, again, if you've seen our series on it, the military situation there was absolutely hopeless. And uh, <laughs> his, and another thing I love about this movie is it does have these hints of like Napoleon the propagandist, which, yeah. you know, he, 
he was an undoubtedly brilliant and talented figure, um, both domestically and in military affairs and in diplomacy, you know, but he is also really, really good at making himself look the best that he can look in the press. Yep. And um, uh, I, I do like that there are a few hints toward that, but, you know, he has this interesting situation in Egypt where just things are not going well and he can win as many battles as he can as he as he wants there and things are still not going to turn around um and he arguably abandons his men and goes back to france though you can also say that as like you know he's needed back in france and there had been this agreement uh with the directory that like you know if we get in trouble, you should come back. But his communications have been cut off and he hasn't been ordered right. to come back. So he's just like, I'm just going to go. Um, and I'll, I'll he, leave Kleber with with this mess. But it's also, you know, his propaganda has not worked domestically in Egypt, which he tries very hard. You know, he, he gets the only Arabic printing press in the world and gets translators and they end up doing these, it turns out, terrible translations into Arabic yeah. that are like practically gibberish. But it has worked fantastically in France, where that this this really shambles of an expedition has made him look like this great conqueror, and um, he he pull he pulls off a Ramses the Great in that sort of way. He like yeah. he just like the the battles where he lost, where he's like, no, like I won, like it's fine, and like it's everyone's like, yay, <laughs> yeah, you know, he comes back, and and one of the things that I I again like it's it's. I sometimes have and sometimes do not have patience for the, like, the real history would be better. Um, but there are times when I think that that is absolutely true with this movie. And one of them is the scene, because I thought it was a little bit flat, where he comes back um, from Egypt and meets the, the, the with the directory and, and kind of, um, you know, because in reality, they're all in it to court-martial him. Like they're going to yeah. punish him and drag his name through the mud. And he comes into Paris and people are like out in the streets and cheering for him. And like he gets there and there's a crowd gathering outside. And he walks in with a bunch, like a few of his officers that come back and like they have tans. They have these Mamluk style sabers that they've all adopted, which become like a, a, a big uh, trend in European militaries. Um, to the point that the U.S. Marines, their saber is a Mamluk saber. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they've got, you know, exotic big cat skins that they've turned into sashes. And they just look like they've come back from this amazing adventure. Um, <laughs> and the directory basically goes like, well, shit, we can't punish him now. <laughs> like, yeah. And, you know, it, it's one of those things of like, I don't. And I think that's one thing the movie is missing is this sense of Napoleon as a charismatic leader and a romantic figure in France. Because we do kind of get weird Napoleon, which don't get me wrong, I love weird Napoleon, but you can have both, you know? Mm, and yeah. um, there isn't really this sense that the army does love him, that, you know, there, there is, I did really like that that little touch when they're going into Russia and he's handing bread out. You know, because mm. there, there, he did do stuff like that, and that was one of the reasons that he was he was really loved. You know, in uh, we don't talk about it in our series, but you know, he does uh, during his invasion of Syria. He goes to a hospital where a bunch of his his men are inflicted with the plague, 
and he's carrying them around from, you know, he's really truly like engaging in actively helping them in a way that is kind of dangerous for him. You know, he's, he's treating them and carrying them and, and it becomes made into this, this big, you know, moment of propaganda. There are paintings of him doing this. Um, but it's something he really did. And this is one of the reasons that he, he is so beloved by his troops. Um, is he has this kind of common touch. Um, and, uh, we don't really get that. And uh, I feel like that scene specifically was a missed opportunity um, yeah. in, in creating this like whole more, more holistic image of Napoleon, who he was and who he was to other people. Um, but having said that, like, I do think that one of the ways to fix that would just be to really just make this a drama about Napoleon and Josephine. And it would have made it a lot less expensive to make yeah right <laughs> uh shahir what about you buddy yeah i i think i you know echo the sentiments here which is that i think um i love little weirdo napoleon like being cucked by his wife and like trying to figure out how to how to uh work within this relationship i loved uh you know venice kirby kind of suggesting that you are not you know like turning the sort of psychosexual relationship uh in on itself in order to further her agenda with him despite like you know uh rob you kind of mentioned the scene where he kind of comes in and neighs to her which i think is very funny uh, and it's where the movie really comes to life um but it was also the time where i was i really you know it's not a phrase that we use uh, uh in the vernacular for uh intercourse very much very often but i was like this is the perfect definition of buggering um right. which was that she was or, like or it was just like yeah. he's not having sex he's he's buggering and nobody else is enjoying this um you know and, and i think he dismounts and says i hope that good work will give us a uh you know an ear to a son, um an ear to the throne um i think the, the the big issue here is that you've you, both of you have kind of hinted at this is there's a disconnect between the sort of the satirical very darkly funny um, look at the inside of a relationship versus the the military might on display. And you've got to remember that Stanley Kubrick was obviously, for a long time, uh, and, and Ridley Scott is, uh, of course, a huge fan of Kubrick, or at least, um, you know, draws from Kubrick and thinks about Kubrick a lot, um, you know, probably would have looked at the film as an opportunity to uh, at least retrace some of Kubrick's steps and and into in terms of how the battles would be done and and you know uh, for all my issues with the back foot of uh, Joaquin Phoenix speaking in a very American accent and everyone else in a British accent talking about how much they hate the British um, you know the battle sequences are remarkably staged incredibly crystal clear very thoughtfully laid out but devastatingly boring um because yeah. they have no real connection to what is the central thesis of this film which is not evident throughout the entire course of this movie <laughs> and the film that i thought about a lot is the death of stalin which i think does a brilliant job of of um allowing us into the sort of insight and oddities and even manages to get away with the accents because it's part of the satire right. but really allows us to kind of contradict that satire with the horrors of what's actually happening in a post-Stalinist um, uh, Russia and, and, and really, and really deal with it in sort of interesting ways and kind of that 
juxtaposition kind of gives you the central thesis about like the nature of human beings and the evils that they're capable of. This movie, I, you know, I again, I'm coming from a point of view where I tend to think, you know, I'm I'm not that excitable by a Ridley Scott film. Um, you know, just doesn't have a clear thesis about why it exists. Um, and, and it's really unfortunate because yeah, the, I, you know, I, yes, I did fall asleep during the battle. I, the, I fell asleep during the battle of Waterloo and that is a thing to say about this movie. Yeah. I fell asleep during the battle of Waterloo. Um, and, and I could feel myself going and, and really struggling to hold on to this movie, but not getting very far at all. Um, I wish there was more to this because it is an extravagant, you know, extravagant amount of money. It is the mm -hmm. same amount of money that was spent on um, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, a film who we've discussed on this podcast as having sort of an interesting uh, approach to history uh, and perhaps uh, maybe um, a missed opportunity in terms of its perspective. But at least one... Uh, that has a kind of clear ethos about what it's trying to do and what it's trying to achieve. And this is a film where I kind of feel that doesn't have that same clarity about it. Um, and I, and I am not, you know, again, we talked about this in the alien covenant episode. I am not one for this argument that seems to come up with every single Ridley Scott movie, that there is a better longer cut, uh, you know, kingdom of heaven famously <laughs> has that conversation, uh, around it. Uh, blade runner has like what, uh, at least half a dozen, uh, edits of it right now. Um, I just am, am, you know, kind of going, you know, we missed the boat on this one and, and I, I, I struggle to actually, other than, um, you know, like enjoy the kind of beautiful absurdity of a great man story being pulled down. And I think, it, it, you know, and I, I was like, if that was Ridley's play for this film, I think that would have been a genius play, mm -hmm. you know, to really kind of do the, the Dr. Strangelove version of this movie. Um, but, but it's not that it is sort of intertwined with this sort of thing um which maybe you know you could circle back to scott's comments about like why he did gods of exodus the way he did which is that he's mounting a film of this size and scale and feels the need to like imbue it with the kind of battle sequences that we know and 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 understand about napoleon but to be frank you know again despite going yes they're very well done i don't care yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very hard to kind of reconcile those two things because I, you know, I still am in admiration of the scale of it. Like, like, you know, uh, again, we talked about it on this podcast, I'm always in admiration of the way that Michael Bay pulls off, you know, his films in terms of like the scale of them and the sheer audacity of the action sequences. But I always will like, am much more enamored by, uh, something that can kind of, uh, a sequence like this, that, that holds together a thesis about why it should exist. Yeah. Um, and this just doesn't have it. And I, uh, I will, I will, for the sake of uh, completion, go back and watch the entire film. But I'm not excited for the four-hour cut. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> so, I'm so just like, a, I'm, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> here's the thing about the four-hour cut. I don't think yeah. it's going to be good. What I do think is we will see whether or not, with the amount of that they shot and what they made, if a good movie is possible in there. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Like, yeah. I, it's almost like an autopsy. Like, yeah. is there enough of the Josephine relationship 
that then does connect to the battles that then does show maybe a juxtaposition between weird Napoleon with Josephine and how he was uh, seen uh, on mass. Like maybe that's there. Yeah, and there, because there's no sense of that in this film, right? There's, none. there's no sense of what you're talking about at all. I like wish. the sense that he's great with his men, that he has a political yeah. ideology that is anything beyond. There's um, the one shot. Like, I Rob just want to fuck Josephine. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. the one What's shot that? Rob mentioned with the bread. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, yeah. there's a there's the famous moment when he comes back from Russia or when he comes into Russia and or uh he comes out of exile and you know like would you strike your emperor? And 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 you and I was like in this sequence I have no context for understanding why anyone would say that. You know, like yeah, I have exactly. no sense of why any of these characters would say that. And in fact, reading the sort of short biography I read today, which was that, which was really funny, was that that was kind of a staged moment that again got repeated in propaganda uh, yeah. because he had actually met with the the opposing forces, or he had sent a um, someone ahead of time to meet with the opposing forces. And I and I think that would have been an interesting story to tell about Napoleon and his and his sort of ability to weave together his own narrative. He planned um, moments. But, like, like yeah, Rob, yeah. correct me if and when I'm wrong, but like even the moment where he takes the crown from the Pope and he puts it on his head, from what I understand, yeah. it is rumored or, or it is said that that was also discussed. Yeah. Like I he mean, didn't just he's do not, that. Well, I don't know if he discussed it with the Pope. Which again, but like, he discussed. I don't. I don't think yeah. that. Um, th so this gets to something larger with me in sure. the film, which I think there is kind of. I think there's like three or four films, like three or four major <laughs> themes hiding yeah. in here, which again is like why I, I'm interested to see the longer version because I feel like maybe some of these could be more developed. I don't think they're all going to be cohesive, but like there is this kind of interesting thing that's going on where. It, it's a contrast between public persona and private life that private weirdo. the two are coming under uh, stress for each other. That yeah. Josephine's infidelity is putting stress on his public image, but his increasing like public image and celebrity and, um, and uh, uh, public face is increasingly affecting their marriage. And what... Bugs, oh, so the crowning scene, um, you know, it's a really shocking thing that he is taking this away from the Pope. And remember, this is a guy he has been at war with. Like he gets that Arabic printing press yeah. because he loots it from the Vatican. Like, yep. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, kind of anti-clerical revolutionaries love Napoleon is that he's sticking it to the Pope. And he, you know, when he goes to Egypt, He's really like, this is a major part of his propaganda. Is like, I beat the Pope. I got the Knights of Malta to surrender. Like, these are your big enemies. I am a friend to the Muslim world, you know. Um, and 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 our kind of deism, our sort of more 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 general sense of Christianity and and of of. Uh, a creator that is is more of like a clockmaker is more compatible with Islam than than uh, mm. Catholic Christianity is. Um, but uh, I I really think that uh, there's something buried in here that's more about the public face and the propaganda 
and the public face. And, you know, another problem with everyone's talking about like the, the English and, and American accents and French, I think actually where that really impacts the movie is in written text because mm. there's a point where he's looking at like this newspaper that says like yeah, Napoleon's yeah. letters to Josephine exposed. That happened, but that happened in the British press. Right, so that's right. supposed to be an English language newspaper that, you know, his enemies are using these, these intercepted letters to make him look terrible. Yeah. But you don't understand that if you're a casual viewer who doesn't know that that's what happened. This looks like a French publication versus, you know, yeah. this other newspaper that talks about her cheating, which is supposed to be a French publication, you know, so that kind of gets confused. One thing that bothers me about this movie, and it's a historical thing that I think really impacts it versus, listen, we can pick that Waterloo scene apart in practically everything. You know, they keep, there's stuff that I don't care about, like that the armies have tons of flags all over them all the time, so you can tell who is who. I can live with that. Because a casual viewer isn't going to be like, that's a French uniform versus that's a British uniform, especially when, you know, there's cavalry and infantry and whatever. Yeah. I completely don't care about that because it's clearly just to make it comprehensible. Um, that it would be more comprehensible if they weren't using a gray filter that killed all the color during all yeah. those battle <laughs> scenes, which is another thing. Um, I don't understand why we think gray and brown filters equals realistic because yeah. these armies were very colorful, very specifically so you could tell who was who. Um, Talk to the video game industry circa 2003. Exactly. Well, and it, you know, it's Saving Private Ryan. Saving <laughs> yeah, Private Ryan yeah. did that. And everyone's like, oh, it's so realistic. So for clearly this is what a realistic though. movie looks yeah. like. Right. But, but for a specific purpose, because it matched newsreel footage at the time. Exactly. That, exactly. Yeah. But then that became like, this is what a realistic, you know, historical movie looks like. That's what war is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and then um, there are just annoying things that you're like, why did they do that? That's so weird. Like the 95th rifles, you know, sniper who has a Baker rifle with like a telescope strapped on it as a scope, which is like, that's, this is the most ridiculous thing you could possibly imagine if you know anything about this period. Though this exchange of like, should I shoot him? I think I can shoot him may have actually happened. I remember reading about this, but it's with a cannon that it was like an right. artillery officer that was like, <laughs> should we try and hit him? And, you know, yeah. there's like, no, we don't do that, yeah. you know. But yeah. my understanding is that was with a cannon, not with a big rifle, which, again, it's just such a strange, it's it's such a bizarre thing that even yeah. if it were in a fantasy movie, you'd be like, that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. um, or like the British in trenches at Waterloo, and they, they cut out probably one of the most, uh, one of the, the, the most, uh, dramatic things in the battle, which is this this fight over kind of like a farmhouse complex um, mm -hmm. where, you know, there's there's guys trying to close the gates while they're, you know, Br they're British trying to close the gates while they're French soldiers trying to push them open. And, you know, these are the kind of things that when you go to a movie, you're hoping to see about Napoleon. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to get this awesome moment from Waterloo and then you don't don't get it. Uh, but uh, uh what, the thing that really bothers me historically, and I kind of hate to bring it up because, again, clearly a conceit, is the Joaquin Phoenix age thing is a yeah. major problem. And it's not just a problem because he's supposed to be 24 
when mm-hmm. he is, you know, at the siege of Toulon, and, and he, he just looks old. Yeah, the yeah. problem is that he looks the age that Joaquin Phoenix is. Vanessa Kirby looks the mm-hmm. age that she is, but she's supposed to be older than him. She's this is like be, the basis yeah. of their relationship is that she's an yeah. older woman. She has connections. Uh, she has this this history. Um mm-hmm. And she she kind of comes from money. She comes from the Caribbean, so she has all these, yeah. these kind of like differences that they they hint towards. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, with her lady lady in waiting, um, being being mixed race, yeah. but like, you know, also, she uh, in the beginning is kind of like the senior partner in this relationship. Right. She's the one that has it has the society connections, many of them because she slept with a lot of these guys. You know, she has these, she's had these lovers and she uses those connections that she has made romantically to pull strings to get him an appointment in in Italy, which is his first right. like place to really shine. Yeah. And so, you know, when you get into these, like you're, you know, you're having affairs on me, she's kind of like, listen, mm-hmm. The fact that I'm having these kinds of connections is what got you where you are today. Like, how much are you going to complain, really? Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, and and then he becomes gradually kind of the the senior partner, and that he becomes more powerful, and he becomes like, and that puts stress on their relationship, and and that aspect of it was just lost. I felt like. Well, let's yeah, let's talk about the Joaquin of it all. Like, I don't think that Joaquin Phoenix did a bad job. No. I think he did very small things that made things more interesting than they probably were on the page. I think it's fine. I, but I will say this, and as as a fan of his, I don't think he pulled off an aspect of this performance that needed Joaquin Phoenix to be Napoleon. Like, like there are there are certain moments in time with actors where I will forgive an age difference or or or, or something that just doesn't feel right either if it's a historical epic or if like it, it's an oddity or whatever um, based on like performance and just effectiveness. But like, and I'm not blaming entirely on his performance. It could be direction. It could be a bunch of different things. Could be structure of the film. But like, I never saw the benefit. To because because I, I like you said not only is uh, the the minor thing of he was twenty four when this all started and that that that's a a different story from a twenty four year old to a late forties or early fifties person in in any situation that does change the emotional resonance and then the crux of the entire thing is their relationship and the fact that Josephine is older so you're having this this visual disparity of what's going on mixed with the muddiness of not showing the importance of either public or private life. And like, I can't help but wish that like, man, could you imagine if they like just cast it different? Like there, I don't think that I, I did not see the thing that Joaquin Phoenix brought to the role of Napoleon. That would make me be like, well, at least we got this. It's a, it is um, it's stunt casting. It, it yeah. really is just like it is a it's a hey uh, Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix best actor winner formerly yeah. you know in Gladiator uh, you know like but the the it comes back to this language thing as well for me because you know um, it you know when 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 Ridley Scott says I can't cast a movie and have Muhammad such and such in a movie like this um, I just think about you know what that is is an indifference to 
uh, storytelling in, in, in this context, because, you know, there's so much emphasis placed here on the actual scale, grandeur. I'm sure, I'm sure the costume department was looking for absolute accuracy in terms of what these costumes were. I'm sure the props department was looking for absolute accuracy in all of this. I'm sure the locations department was really thinking about that. And I, and what I just always think about, and it is rhetorical and it is silly and it's an extrapolation of an idea, but it, to me, it always points to why this is such a flawed premise of an of an argument that you know Ridley Scott has made in the past is that let's just for a second imagine Claire Denis, a filmmaker who we've discussed on this podcast who made uh, Beautrevail, you know, which we discussed a few weeks ago. Imagine Claire Denis, a famous French auteur, making a film about Ulysses S. Grant and casting Jean Dujardin as the as Ulysses S. Grant and having every member of the of the cast you know ca- speaking French. Um, throughout the entirety of the film, what would we think about that movie just on the basis of, of what it exists? And this is a film about one of the greatest leaders in French history that is doing exactly that, and we treat it as if it's normal. And it is not normal. And it is not, it's, it is, we are not at that place anymore. You know, like I, I, I to, to make up for the fact that I fell asleep, the thing that I went and revisited, uh, because I love Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, um, I went and revisited uh, Ridley Scott's 1492, A Conquest of Paradise, his retelling of Columbus. And it's really fascinating right. to watch that movie because it's, it's, it, it is playing into all the sort of popular myths about Christopher Columbus, even though it comes out, it, you know, it comes in 1992, some 20 years after, uh, no, some 15 years after Howard Zinn's book comes out. And, you know, many texts that have already debunked all of these, all of these myths. But it is like what, you know, there's, there's, there's a seemingly indifference to making a film that actually interrogates these ideas, that interrogates the mythology of Napoleon, that gives us something to, to, to think about and chew on. And for me, the language is a real fundamental part of that. And it's a real like, hey, guys, I understand, you know, from a production point of view that, yes, you might be like we can't make a French movie because people are too dumb to listen to French people speak. But I'm like, but you're talking about Napoleon. I'm like, again, just imagine, just imagine Abraham Lincoln in French. That's all I want you to do. You know? You you know what? Yeah. That suddenly triggered something for me, which I couldn't, there was something that I was like, this is, this reminds me of another movie that did this better. And I was like mentally grasping for it. And you know what it is? It's downfall. Downfall. Yes. yes. Downfall. Yeah. Superb. You film. know, Hitler, Hitler in, in a bunker. German, German yeah. actors. Yeah. It's about a very specific yeah. period in time, and it yeah. reinterprets kind of a familiar historical figure. Um, downfall yeah. is, and again, like like every historical movie, it has its, its accuracy issues, but like it is excellent, and it is very specific about what it's doing, and it does it really well. Um, I mean. To me, the Joaquin Phoenix problem is that is an age problem. It's a focus problem, and it's it's the and it's just because it undermines the core relationship and the core theme yeah. that I believe was was being being gone for. And you know, they both try very hard and they do very well with what they what they have. And you know, again, like there are scenes in this movie I really enjoy, um, and. Uh, uh, there are details in it I absolutely love. And one of the reasons I like historical movies is even if the movie is not good, it always spurs an interesting conversation. Whereas if you see a bad mm-hmm. action movie, you generally 
can't right. talk about it for Throw more it than like yeah. 10 minutes. But you see a, a historical yeah. movie that is a real mess and you can have a four hour conversation about that. You know, yeah. why it's a mess <laughs> and what it should have done or like whatever. And in some ways, I think that's why historians love to jump on historical movies is they're like, oh, hey, I can talk about, you know, I can talk about Napoleon and Wellington on TV and be relevant and people will listen to me. Like, right, right, right. There, there's yeah. an excitement <laughs> that comes with that. Like, and well, uh, I even I even like seeing just the small, like tiny moments that I wish they expelled upon more just stuff that I've learned from working on the Napoleon in Egypt series and stuff like that. Like uh, Tomas Alexandre uh, Dumas is here. Not I mean, he's accredited as General Dumas, but not like they don't yeah. talk to him. Like I was like, oh, man, I had the Leo moment looking at the TV like there he is. Yeah. And I had uh, also we get like one savant drawing a mummy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, like, there, there's the whole fucking thing. And I was just like, it's nice to get those moments. I just wish there was more. And then, of course, when the, then there's also the fun things of picking apart things that were just not true, but like don't matter because it's a cool L. like the thing that I'm not mad at is how he shoots the pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> right like i am kind of mad happen. about that one but no, like... I'm not. and here's the thing he was nine like nine miles across the 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 nile like the battle of the pyramids was nowhere near the pyramids like you could see him in the distance whatever but you know what it traded accuracy for a fucking cool shot and i was mm -hmm. like there we go there's some liberty that is completely wrong that looks so cool i'm forgiving it and that was the only moment in the entire movie that that happened you know, I think uh, to your point, Rob, um, yeah, there. it's wonderful when we can pick apart things like this. I am actually, you know, the thing that I just sort of rallied against, which was the idea of like doing a, a French film entirely in English accents uh, because it just loses all the nuance. I'm, you know, again, uh, coming back to Death of Stalin uh, or even Kubrick's film Paths of Glory, which is about the French Legion. Um, you know, like I'm okay with that if the film has a point to make right. and actually has a clear thesis about what it's trying to do. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, yes, then I can kind of forgive it. But, but unfortunately that's not the case here, you know, like, right. and it's, mm -hmm. it's, Definitely. it's amazing. It's amazing that it's done on such a scale, you know, like it's such an enormous scale of a film with such a sort of huge stakes in it in terms of who the actors are and, and, and the sort of weight of history to it. But it is, so um it, it's 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 this this will sound harsher than it is but it's such a meaningless movie yeah it's boring mm -hmm. <laughs> it's boring because it doesn't take it 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 is a it is a it is a a, a film reel or a flash like a slideshow mm -hmm. of what's supposed to be an incredibly interesting person and moment in history but you get none of the context on either side of him as the so the public figure or the private figure you get. And it teases you with the possibility of those interesting tidbits and never fucking gives them to you. And it trains you in its pacing to never expect them. And then you just don't give a shit like it. It's it, it feels very squandered. Mm. And I could see I can see why that exacerbates the, the language problem for you, Shahir, the and the other problems we've talked about. I, I think that to the kind of death of Stalin point, um, it it does something, I think, intentionally. I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, there's so much unintentional comedy in this movie. And I'm like, no, I think it's absolutely intentional. You know, yeah. I think that there is an attempt by Ridley Scott. And um, 
again, like there are some decisions that you just look at and you're like are baffling. Apparently, his military advisor was like a paratrooper um, who has right. also appeared in some of these like historical articles. It's like yeah. why that's that's great, but like you didn't have like a historian on set also. Like <laughs> you, you just you're gonna to have this paratrooper who's telling people how to you know march around like you know 18th century soldiers, you know, <laughs> like. But um, I think there's a really specific attempt to demythologize yeah. some of these people, which I always really enjoy. Like mm -hmm. I yeah, again, that's when the movie comes alive. The tone is so inconsistent <laughs> and weird yeah. that like I don't think they pull it off in any way. Like. Death of Stalin does, but like, I think it does a very similar thing to Death of Stalin in that, you know, you have these stupid jokes and these like, yeah. oh God, he's telling the story about the guy with the grenade in his pocket again, you know, yeah. um, and or, or uh, just even the, the, the destiny has brought me to this lamb chop or you're, yeah, you think amazing. you're so great because you, you think it. you're so great because you have boats, yeah. you know, like, yes. th these yeah. are, these are the, but then just think about the way Death of Stalin continues to escalate yes. those jokes to the point of absurdity and then we get the gut the gut punch of what cruelty is behind the actual the actual power yes. transition of power that's happening between these people so behind the comedy there is this horror show that is happening and it is a movie that understands what those two th what those two factors are going to be doing against each other yeah. and, and and so like yeah. one of my favorite moments of that is that Arthur Wellesley the duke of wellington goes on the ship which again this is a meeting that yep. never happened Again, I don't, I don't, I'm not really that upset about this because like, what are you going to yeah. do? Take another character that we've never heard of that we're not going to name and have right. you know, them be this. Yeah. There is a really fun moment where he's like, why are you letting the midshipman talk to Napoleon? Like the idea that his ideas yeah. are so dangerous and so toxic. You cannot let youth be near him, which is very yeah. much how the British saw Napoleon or, or any right. like major revolutionary figure. But, you know, Wellington gets on this boat and he, he bumps his head. And, you know, yeah. everyone in the theater was like, ha ha, and kind of, yeah. you know, uncomfortable, like, why would you put that in this movie way? Yeah. You know, and and to me, that is, I love moments like that in books yeah. or films because it's, you know, it brings these people down to a level where they are people. Yeah. And again, I think it it plays into this attempt to create a, the real person versus the legendary person, you know, that yeah. is being... Um, and it just doesn't ever really come off and just appears weird. Um, yeah. The, uh, but yeah, then, then you have like moments where, where you're like, well, the truth is so weird and bizarre that like, I, I wish they had done it. You know, his meeting with Alexander, I understand why they didn't do the first part of this, which is it's held on a barge in the middle of a river. And like, that would be a nightmare to shoot. I understand right. why you wouldn't put a barge in the middle of a river and try and shoot a scene between them on it. But one thing that they could have done, which is that those two got along so well that by the end of the meeting, they're literally kissing each other on the cheeks. Right. You know, and he goes back to Josephine and says, like, if he were a woman, I would make him my mistress. You know, right. which <laughs> both is just sort of a weird thing to say. But we're playing you know, beautifully to the to the insecurity of his relationship or the, the kind of oddity of his relationship with Josephine. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like that yeah. that, you know, he kind of sees Alexander as this this junior partner, as yeah. like you know, like someone who could be subsumed in the eighteenth century, everything is power relationships, right? Yeah. And yeah. um and just to oh, another 
decision that is just so strange is they really specifically were shooting Joaquin Phoenix to make him look shorter than everyone around him, <laughs> including yeah. like Josephine and like random other women. And, and okay, so again, Napoleon, you have these things where like, Everyone knows this, but then everyone knows the corrective, but then like you get into so like the height thing. Yeah, everyone yeah. knows that Napoleon, quote unquote, was short, but everyone also knows that he, quote unquote, wasn't short. He was average sized and that this yeah. was British propaganda. I would actually go a third step and say like, it was a thing in European militaries at this time for soldiers and officers to be big dudes. Like- right. They're specifically wearing hats that make them look bigger. Like, and yeah, right. you take all your tallest soldiers and you put them in grenadier regiments or you put them in, you know, guards regiments or whatever. And having a coterie of officers around you that are big dudes is a thing. And that is going to make an average sized person look smaller in comparison. So, like, right. I think there is actually this element of Napoleon does kind of appear like a short guy because he's surrounded by big dudes, even though he's right. average sized, which plays into this other thing. But then like, uh, they take it too far. And, like, I don't there, know. So that's, there, again, there it's like there's a million great, ways to show him. <laughs> like, and again, it's, it's, it's frustrating, I guess, because there are some actually great scenes in here. For example, at the, um, I think it's the, the, the directory gets transformed into, uh, Napoleon is one part of it uh, later on and the three of chased them. down the hallways uh, by soldiers <laughs> of the of parliament or whatever the French uh, version of it is. And, you know, Napoleon is like, they tried to kill me. Yeah, I love it. You know, um, um, it, that actually, you know, again, I, I was actually like very taken by the idea <laughs> that Scott was going to like really... Uh, punch through this material in a way that like was absurdist and like fun to watch and and able to kind of pull it apart in those ways but as you say then once we th there's, there's such a somber tone to the Austerlitz scene that mm. you know that and, and and the thing is um you know my understanding of napoleon is that he what's incredible about him is 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 his he's an incredible tactician so he is an incredible person who understands the movements of large uh, fleets of forces and understands how to lure and pull and uh, attract. And, you know, like there's even a moment in this where he says, we've been spotted, good. Um, you know, like, mm -hmm. but I, I really, there's a thing about it where it only happens in the moment. And I don't see perhaps in the film the kind of effort and planning that makes him such a great tactician. You know, like I'm always just kind of like going, Oh yeah, I guess he's good, uh, but I I'm never as a viewer going. Oh, that guy's good. You Here's know? what it is: yeah. we're never shown the connective tissue about why yeah. these people, both Napoleon and Josephine, are interesting and important. Mm -hmm. We just see them in in hopefully interesting and important situations. So Josephine. We don't know in the movie, and I think this has to do with the age differential being wrong. I think it has to do with the, the fact that uh, Vanessa Kirby is, even though she's wonderful in moments in it, is vastly underused. Yeah. Um, the, the scene that bugged the fuck out of me that would make total sense if A, you knew who Josephine was and B, how she maneuvered her way around the time was when that when she spreads her legs and she says look down you know you know yeah. once you see it you'll always want like in the moment of that movie it just feels like a salacious bullshit like okay ha, ha, like whatever 
but that's what Joseph, like that's Josephine. And if you don't know, like, like that's the way she maneuvered around this. That's the first time you deal with her other than like, she's playing cards one time. You're like, I don't understand why this woman's doing that. Oh, it's just a dumb scene to put in for like some sex appeal or whatever. Mm. On the flip side of that, Napoleon, we don't see, we, we, we do not see at any point in this movie why he is revered what the only time we see the anything he's good at is in three battles where he does a clever switcheroo and you're like cool but like you don't understand the national like if you don't understand the time period you don't understand the nationalism there's still like mm -hmm. for i can't even imagine a a person who did not pay deep attention in a very lucky history class in the United States walking into this and thinking any of it's important. Like yeah. it's not yeah. presented in that way. We're never, we're never shown why this is impressive. We're never shown why this man is important. It's just, he's around all these important things. And I think that really fucking that's, that's the thing for me. That'll be my final thought of this entire thing is it, it takes two incredibly interesting and influential people and it displays them in such just basic B in a basic B way that like you lose all of it, even though they're surrounded by visual and, and film uh, creation splendor. Like it still just falls flat. That's, that's going to be my final thought. I, think. I, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think this movie really needed some like pre-battle briefing scenes. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem was if you get into that, then you have to start getting into Napoleon's marshals, which are a huge part of his, right. you know, that he's not. One of the problems with Napoleon, historically, how he's perceived in, in the public, is that his era is the Napoleonic era. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're talking about France, and you're doing a basic level, you're talking about how great Napoleon is. And he is great, and he does a ton of things that are just not even mentioned in this movie, like reforming the legal code. The Napoleonic yeah. code is still with us, you know? Yeah. Um, he's like the lawgiver, he's like the diplomat, he's all, all these different things, but he's not doing any of this stuff alone, and except for Talleyrand, who's always great to see, you know? Um, we don't get to see Ney, we don't get to see Clabert, we don't get to see Dumas, we don't get to see any of these uh, uh, really influential and important people in his mm. life and the life of, you know, the, the nation of France at this time. Um, and because they want to focus the relationship so much on Napoleon and Josephine, it's like, well, then why didn't you just make the Napoleon and Josephine movie? Like. Yeah. Um, and it could be a very small movie and it could right. be a really fun, great, uh, you know, great movie with, with a bigger impact than this as well. You yeah. know, what was a great Napoleonic movie that was small scale and really focused on the relationships was well, yeah. that movie, the duelists who made that movie. That's Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Scott. Ridley Scott. <laughs> Ridley Scott. Oh, oh you're, sorry, you you're being rhetorical. Which yeah. is an amazing Napoleonic movie. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's because it's so focused, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think my final thought on this is uh, the director of Alien Covenant strikes again. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, just, I you know, look, we're talking about one of 
I, I'm always perplexed by this in terms of the hit and miss ratio. We are talking about one of the bearded greats uh, that is anointed in, in, in cinema culture as, as one of the masters of the art form. But again, I always just look at this list and I go, you know, compared to like Spielberg or Scorsese, even De Palma or Coppola, um, you know, the great white man of, of, of American cinema, I, I'm just always like, you know, like the numbers just don't stack up for me. And I'm, I, you know, like I, I'm always kind of going, is that what we're doing here? You know, like when we get, you know, Prometheus and Alien, I'm like, is that what we're doing here? You know, the last deal I kind of was like mixed well, on. A- Alien's but, but in wonderful. the middle of it, I, I, I will give it like a real, a real banger, you know, um, director for hire kind of scenario, but like just really efficiently told and brilliantly told is The Martian. You know, it's just a sure. It's like that is just such a sharp. I was like, if that if that was the generalized output that we were talking about here, I'd be like, yeah, I get it, I get it. I'm, but we get these, and I'm like, what are we doing here? I think he's more hit than miss, even though when he misses, he more fucking hit than misses. miss. Yeah, look, really? I mean, look, Alien, Blade Runner, Legend. Fucking Thelma and Louise. Legend? You putting Legend up there? Legend's classic. Yeah, I don't know about I'll that. I'll even man. put G.I. Jane was enjoyable. <laughs> I enjoyed Hannibal. I liked Black Hannibal. Hawk Down. You're gonna Hannibal. <laughs> but these but what I'm saying is these movies all said something and tried a thing, and whether or not it connected with an individual mm. or not, I feel like they're complete experiences. Mm. But then we start getting into what I'll call his uncomplete experience uh phase which is exodus gods and kings prometheus um he jumps back to good stuff in the martian alien covenant not good and then he tricks me again with the last duel which i was like such a weird switcheroo for me and then i did not see house of gucci so i cannot speak to it but like sorry rob you know what i think ridley scott's thing is he reminds me of like one of those painters that paints a lot and paints very yeah. quickly and passionately. And like, sometimes it comes out okay. And sometimes yeah. it comes out like transcendently good, but it yeah. like kind of doesn't matter because he's on to the next thing. Yeah. He feels yeah. like yeah. someone to He's got four like, movies in production right now. Yeah. yeah, who like really works fast and hyper focuses on stuff. And he's like yeah. done with it and he's on to the next thing. And like- I cannot believe, I cannot believe we're getting Gladiator Gladiator 2, man. Gladiator oh 2 is coming. Um, yeah. I, Written by David Scarper, who also wrote Napoleon. Fuck. Um, there's the, what's the famous story about the, the Gladiator sequel that was written by um, Nick Cave, I think it Nick was. Cave. Where, yeah, and it's a it's a sequel set in does Gladiator he be, Maximus is reincarnated, I believe, and comes yep. into the yeah. into present day or something <laughs> like that. And and like I, I believe Russell Crowe said it was one of the best scripts he'd ever read. <laughs> and it was like I was like, what is this movie? What is well, this? <laughs> anyway. You know what you know what though, like Gladiator itself is uh enough of a fantasy film that it's almost like, sure, whatever. Like, yeah. yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. Um, I'm not um, big on the Gladiator train either. Yeah, it's Denzel it's funny. Washington's like, going to be in Gladiator too. I I I enjoy Gladiator, and it's funny because I really remember when that came out, and historians were like slamming on it so hard, and yeah. then like twenty years later, they're like, "Well, you know, it's really more of a fantasy movie. Everyone just likes Gladiator," and I'm like, "Man, that ain't what we were saying at the time for sure." Yeah, yeah, and like. I th- I think I remember that year. What were the other nominees for Best Picture? It was Gladiator, Chocolat, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic. 
And I would have picked three of those over a gladiator. <laughs> I have a story about this. I have a behind okay. the scenes story about this. So when I was in high school, I won a um, playwriting award at, uh, from an organization in New York. And uh, I went there, I saw some shows, there was like a little workshop and um, I'm not gonna name who it was, but uh, I ended up having dinner with fellow you know, award winners at the um, house of this uh, well-known playwright screenwriter. Um, and we got to like hold his Tonys and his Oscar. And uh, <laughs> I, I had always, I think it was like 16 at the time. I, but I had this thing in my head that like the first time I touch an Oscar, I'm not going to say, wow, it's so heavy. Um, right. but and it was handed to me. And of course, the <laughs> first thing it says, oh man, it's so heavy. Like, Damn it. Oh. Um, but uh, uh, he was a, uh, an Academy voter because yeah. uh, he was a winner. And um, I saw his screeners like yeah. laying out there. It was very exciting. Like, oh, DVDs that haven't come out yet. And I was like, so who, what did you what did you vote for for Best Picture? And he's yeah. like, well, I voted for Gladiator because I like Sandal films. That's <laughs> and, <I'm> it. Like, <laughs> and that just wow. put the Oscars into perspective for me. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. yes, this is the level that it's at. It's just like, I liked that one movie. So I voted yeah. for did, it. Did this take place at Dana, uh, Dana Barrett's apartment? No. That was, ah, damn I was it. not five or six years old at that time. <laughs> no, you came back. It was going to be back. full circle. It's funny. I think Variety runs a thing every year where they talk to an Academy voter. And it's always comments like that, which is like, well, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was good, but I couldn't really understand it. So I voted for Gladiator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the kind it's, of comments you always get that um, from those from that article. Well, I think we've we've thoroughly again on this podcast debunked the Oscars. Um, <laughs> hey, everyone, this has been the only podcast about the film Napoleon. Rob, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us for so long on this episode. It has been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've had tons of tons of fun. I could talk for two more hours at this movie. <laughs> hey, <laughs> bonus content. <laughs> Uh, when, when, when you are not, uh, talking with us here, uh, where can folks find you? Uh, I'm of course, uh, head writer of extra history, uh, on YouTube. And I, uh, have a, a bunch of books under the Warhammer brand. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Rob Wright's pulp. Um, and also on blue sky at Robert Rath, R-A-T-H. And, uh, I'm at Rob Wright's pulp on Instagram. I don't know. We'll just name all of them in case Twitter burns down in the next 24 hours. Yeah, it's important because everyone's on different socials. You don't know who's looking at what. Uh, but no, seriously, Rob, it's been it's been wonderful. Um, and, and everybody listening, if you've listened to me say any, nearly any word uh, on extra history, Rob has put them uh, in in my in my mouth, let, letting me say these wonderful things and te help teach everybody all this stuff. So thank you, Rob, for that. And thank you for coming on the show. Um, Shahir, when you are not complaining about the greatness of people with more watercraft than you where can folks find you i'm actually struggling to, th to figure out that reference but i will say you can find me at my website www.shahirdaud.com that's s-h-a-h-i-r-d-a-u-d or my company website suvanova.com that's s-u-v-a-n-o-v-a -A. matt when you are not being puppeteered by rob as uh, as the as the proverbial hand up your butt moving your mouth around where can people find you 
You can find me really disappointed at you that you didn't uh, remember that you think you're so great because you have boats oh, over at my oh, website, m-a-t-t-h-e-w-k-roll.com, my life and works from 12 years ago. Or obviously check out Extra History over on YouTube or Nebula. Uh, and of course, extra credits as well. Um, uh, Emperor MSK on Twitter uh, and uh, Skeletor 4 Prez on PSN and Instagram. Next week... We got a we got a request for salt burn. There's a lot of I'd like uh, to watch salt burn. A lot, a lot of burning of the salt that people are interested. It is that time of year again where all the interesting films are coming out. Still would love to catch Anatomy of a Fall, which is coming out soon uh, on VOD. Uh, lots of lots of great uh, the boy and the hair on, which we can hopefully have a guest for as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, Rob, it, is there anything coming out that you're excited about? Yeah, or, do you, or was this your was oh, this, this your, your, uh, your outing? Was this, this your was, yeah, this this was my, this is my, I'm on a, I'm on a business trip, uh, to the UK next week. And actually I was thinking, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should see a movie while I'm over there. Go to the, have, have the, you been to the BFI? Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be in London. Uh, oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to be up North. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I have to, I have to look at what's coming out. I'm very disconnected. Oh, yeah, there's you a know lot. what? This isn't about a movie I'm about to say. You know what I did love about this film? And I think it was the funniest <laughs> thing about it and that nobody yeah. has mentioned and it's it's such a beautifully observed thing is that they're talking about these revolutionary ideals and like how they've you know they're going to do it better and they're all living in like palaces with servants right, yeah. and it's suddenly it's yeah. like immediately like oh <laughs> I see where this is going yeah what? we see the class warfare going on <laughs> yeah oh dear all right well until next time we we bless your ear holes dear listeners thank you so much for listening to this episode. And as a special treat, after the music plays, we're going to take Shakir's AI. Where is it from again? What film? The Exorcist. The there Exorcist. Is a, there's a commercial for the Astoria World Manor uh, in The Exorcist in a very small thing. And I had it translated. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah. So check that out after this. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Ακόμα και φωτογραφικό σχέδιο για τον γραμμύριο αναμνηστικό άλβο. Μάμα!